ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name's Chris Henry. I'm one of the hosts here, and I'm the EAA Aviation Museum Manager. And uh, today, we're very lucky uh, to have with us uh, another uh, person from the museum uh, way of life, the aviation world, uh, and that is Ami Eckert Lee. Uh, Ami, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat. Well, same. And, and Ami, you are the uh, creative director down at the Couch Aviation Museum, which is not that far away from us. And um, tell us a little bit about where you are and uh, just, you know, maybe like the scope of the collection. What, what is the museum uh, all about down there? Wonderful. Yes. So um, the Couch Aviation Museum is located in Broadhead, Wisconsin, on the Broadhead Airport, Charlie 37. And we're just like right in the middle of everything and the middle of nowhere. We're very close to Chicago and Rockford and Madison, um, just over the state line from Illinois, but, and close to Oshkosh. But uh, we are in a very rural area and we are a museum that focuses entirely on the golden age of aviation, which is roughly the era between the world wars. So we like to say 1920 to 1940. Um, We're pretty special, I like to say, I like to think, um, because we're a flying museum. So we have a collection of about 24 aircraft and they are pretty much all airworthy. Um, That doesn't mean they're all an annual, but several of them are at any given moment. So we still fly our collection. We also have an extensive library and an archive of a lot of items and materials, such as some cool blueprints. Um, and a ton of photographs. Uh, That's kind of the overview of who we are. Um, We're open a few days a week, and well, we're open every week for for five days out of the week, and we have a lot of people come through for education, a lot of people come through for aviation interest. Um, Yeah, that's kind of what we do day to day. Oh, that's fantastic, and you're, of course, you know, the fly-in that happens there is very special at all uh, antique aircraft fly-in, which is amazing. Yeah. I uh, got to experience that for the first time this year, uh, camped under the wing of a Cessna and uh, um, just sat there watching the, the fly-in go by. It was fantastic. We're very lucky. You know, I, I'm sitting here now outside the museum because we are undergoing some construction, which I'll talk about later. And literally as I speak, I can see... Um, on Broadhead Airport, we have a ton of vintage aircraft, and somebody's Waco 9 is just going down the runway right now. So we're in a pretty special place, and we have a pretty special community. Like you mentioned, we have a couple of fly-ins each year hosted by the airport here, and so I think the museum is in the perfect place for that. Virtually every hangar on the airport has a unique, if not one-of-a-kind, vintage aircraft in it. So it's wonderful to finally have a public place on the airport where anybody can come in, whether they know a lot or nothing about airplanes or vintage aviation, um, and just kind of jump right in, even when it's not the fly-in season. Well, and I really love the, um, I, you know, I have the chance to experience the museum for the first time uh, down there, and, and I really love the, for lack of a better term, like the exhibits, or, or for lack of a better term, the vignettes that you've set up, like the, the flying in Hollywood area. Um, it really tells a compelling story, um, you know, around some of the aircraft and aircraft type that were used in Hollywood and some of the stories behind it. Uh, I thought that was just really cool. And like you said, it's a flying museum. So when you build an exhibit, it has to be there has to be a way to make sure you can get the airplane out to go flying. You know, so it's you, know, you can't build <laughs> yeah. the exhibit completely around the airplane. 
No, you know, that's been a challenge. So we opened, the museum officially opened in July of 2021. So we haven't been around as a public open facility for very long. And it has been a challenge. I've been here for going on six years. Um, I started as a volunteer and uh, pretty quickly realized that there, there was one paid employee at the time and there was no building and the museum was about to come to be and a lot of fundraising had happened and we were right on the cusp of that big change from being basically potential to being a facility. And there was a huge emphasis on the aircraft, but there wasn't really much thought yet gone into how are we going to present this to the museum audience and who is our museum audience? So I come from a background of arts and not airplanes at all. Um, and I spent my childhood going to a ton of museums. So I got very excited about that. And luckily it was a perfect timing for everybody. Um, the board was willing to hire me to do more of the creative side of things as that became necessary. Um, so I'm glad you like the exhibits. They have been challenging because like you said, we have to be able to move them. So most of our exhibits are in our 12,000 square foot showroom hangar, the night hangar. Uh, and right now, let's see, what's the most recent count? We have 13 aircraft in there. Um, and it's we call it musical airplanes, shuffling them all around <laughs> and <laughs> shuffling them so that the ones that fly the most are near the door. And also so that we can put our display items out. Everything is on wheels. And we were very happy also to have some big wheel dollies for the aircraft so we can sort of push them around in smaller areas. We also have a fire truck and four vintage cars and a shed and like 12 engines in there. So it's, it gets pretty small, pretty fast. <laughs> um, and then, so you can picture it in your mind's eye. We're just right off the grass runways here at Broadhead. We only have grass runways and we have this huge hangar and you just open up the door and there's the 13 aircraft. You can roll them out um, and fly them. We do have obviously more than that and they're stored in other hangars on the field, but it was a journey to, um, how do I say this, Chris? I just so everybody knows I'm a woman and I am 26 now. So I started working here when I was about 20 and I, everyone was so welcoming and so friendly. And I was the youngest by like 40 years and there was not another woman in sight. And it was a great opportunity and everybody was really welcoming, but it took some negotiation to explain why being a museum is very different from just being a hangar full of airplanes and why that's important, you know, if we're going to continue our mission to spread the joy and science of aviation. Um, and we've come a long way and those displays being engaging and about more than just mechanics or more than just an airplane sitting in a room has been a really big part of that. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that years ago, a few decades ago, it was sort of, you know, plop the airplane down, rope around it, done. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think what we're getting to now is, you know, it's more important that we tell the people story. We have to tell, you know, we honor these heroes. Let's talk about these heroes. Let's talk about what they did. Um, so, yeah, I think telling the people story is incredibly important. Um, it makes it, you know, more tangible, I think, for people visiting the museum to understand why, a, you know, in our case, uh, you know, a Corsair uh, is important. You know, why why do I care about what color this is painted? Then when you learn about mm -hmm. the people who flew it, you know, you're sort of like, oh, okay, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely 100% uh, yeah. agree with you. Um, 
I love, by the way, that there's just airplane noise behind you as we're talking. It's fantastic. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think you hear that. Uh, someone's peen pole just landed, and then the Aranka C3 is, is taxiing out to take off. So I wasn't sure if you could hear it. That's cool. It's probably the, the first green dot we've had where we just have, like, live air traffic kind of cutting through it. It's, it's fantastic. So um, <laughs> I'm so glad. Chris, uh, you mentioned stories, and I wanted to say before we move on that that is key here you know we are telling a story and there are so many really incredible truly unbelievable sometimes stories in aviation and in specific uh in the golden age of aviation and attached to a lot of the airplanes you know like a piece of art has i believe they call it a provenance Mm -hmm. as a history assigned to it you know so do all the aircraft so telling those stories and finding ways to make that compelling and connect with people is really my favorite part of the job. Well, absolutely. And I think it's a gateway for people who maybe wouldn't totally be interested in airplanes. Um, it it kind of lets them what I would call an in. You know, you start mm-hmm. you, you start learning about this person and then you're like, OK, now I'm interested in what I'm looking at. It, it's a. You know, it's a way to get people fired up about history, and uh, you yeah. can never have you know enough people excited about preserving the past. I think so. I get very excited about that, and it's a big goal of ours to have the history not be dusty or dry or dead. Mm-hmm. And like I mentioned before, we do have like a lot of educational focus. Um, that's part of our mission. The Kelch Aviation Museum's mission is to celebrate and share the joy of aviation and the science from that era, and so especially in the last few years that we've been open, we're trying to do more school tours. And, you know, you get 25 second graders and, you know, they don't know who Charles Lindbergh is. I'm lucky these days if anybody 30 years old or 40 knows who Charles Lindbergh is and they don't have any context for these aircraft or these stories. And so it's been like a personal challenge of mine to try to find ways to connect with kids. And now we have more like hands-on exhibits and stuff. But yeah, if you can find a story and especially for kids, if you can find something for them to do with their hands, then you've got them. Well, you know, you're, 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 you're going to laugh. I I was giving a tour last summer and I mentioned to some kids, like who's excited to go see the new Top Gun and that, you know, Top Gun Maverick was coming out and it was going to be super cool and that, you know, mm-hmm. and someone, one of the kids told me that they didn't know that it was a sequel. Um, and I immediately felt very old that, <laughs> that they didn't know, they didn't know that there was a first Top Gun. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so, um, oh boy. Yeah. Um, but that's awesome that you guys get, you know, school groups out there. Um, tell us about uh, maybe some of the events, both for kids and adults that you do, because I know you do some, some evening programming as well. Yeah. Uh, so we have a monthly aviation movie night and you mentioned before we have a Hollywood display. So, um, aviation is a big part of early Hollywood is a big part of the early, early 20th century. So we wanted to start doing movie nights. We've got the space. We focus on, we try to show films either from that golden age between 1920 and 1940 or about it. Obviously there's a limited amount of films focusing on that. So we've branched out. Um, tomorrow is our final movie night of this year. Um, and and we'll be showing a John Wayne. So we try to appeal to the public, um, both aviation people and non-aviation people. And then in terms of other events, it's been very exciting to spread out our focus. So we obviously want to appeal and attract a lot of aviation folks, um, but we're spreading it around. So this past June, we had the first of what hopefully will be an annual June hangar dance um, 
we had a full big band here and we had some performers in addition to that. And I know we had folks from three hours away, four hours away had come just for that. And these were folks who would not have come to an aviation museum. They just wanted the music or they wanted the experience. And so being able to have that kind of event is super fun. We have community open houses. Our little community here, the town of Broadhead is only 3000 people. Um, they've been so supportive of us. So we love to have events where they can just come out, especially kids. Um, we're going to have a holiday open house on December 10th and you know, we'll have maybe the fire engine out and we'll have Christmas cookies and, you know, it'll just be a fun time here. We want to be a place people like to hang out and visit more than once. Um, and then also this year, 2023, we had a 100th birthday celebration for um, our fire engine. It turned 100 on May 4th. So we had a big party. And that fire engine has been in Broadhead since it was born, so to speak. <laughs> and so, you know, we're coming on a lot of these 1920s, 100th birthday parties for our for our aircraft collection. And it's fun to throw a, a party for an airplane, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I got to fly uh, this past summer in a 1927 uh, Swallow. And oh it, it dawned on me that, like, I was flying an airplane that was almost 100 years old. And, uh, you know, it dawned on me at like 3,000 feet, you know, and I was like, oh, wow, this, thing, this thing's like 100 years old. It just dawned, you know, like I'm not sure why I didn't think of it ahead of time, but uh, but it's really cool. I mean, um, I love ours. Ours has a story where uh, a woman ordered it, bought the airplane, and didn't tell her husband. Uh, oh. And we actually have the paperwork or copies of the paperwork that uh, uh, when the company delivered it, you know, they had a – they had a uh, uh, they had filled out the paperwork and it said Mr. and her name and they had to scratch it out and write Mrs. and, uh, which I thought was really <laughs> cool. So, um, yeah, that, that, but I love that era airplane. There's just something so beautiful about the, the stuff built in the twenties, uh, and thirties oh, even that just, yeah, just, just gorgeous airplanes. I'm a big fan of art deco and just like the design and people will ask, what is the golden age? Why is it important? You know, people will also walk in and say, well, do you have any warplanes? Do you have any fighters? And the answer is no. And there are some amazing aircraft and we will even turn away certain donations that we feel would be better suited in a different museum. Um, but the reason we focus on the golden age, aside from just loving it, is at that time in history, I'm going to pause. That. <laughs> Sounds like you're on an airport. <laughs> I am. There's a cub that just landed and then we had a little flyby. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, it keeps getting interrupted, but that's fun. I think everybody listening will absolutely love that, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you'll have to post a picture or something of our Pete and Pole and C3, because that was the two of them together. Um, <laughs> anyway, back to where I was. Um, you know, the golden age, especially the late 20s, you know, 1927, after Charles Lindbergh flew the Atlantic and and that happened, it's very difficult, I think, for us today to understand what a huge impact that had. And very difficult to fully comprehend what a a difficult feat that was. You know, if I can, I, I go back and I read, you know, and so many people had died trying to do that and everything was changing every day. You know, we have aircraft that had been built five years ago and they were suddenly obsolete because technology was changing so fast and suddenly anything was possible. And I think, you know, we call the 20s the roaring 20s because so much was going on and that kind of energy is just, is just overflowing from the aviation portion of the world. And, you know, in 1927, seeing an airplane land or fly over would be like if you and I, I don't know, if we saw like 
the spaceship land in the backyard. Like it was just almost yeah. unheard of. And so trying to wrap my head around that and then everybody becoming obsessed with Charles Lindbergh and aviation after May of 1927, we call that the Lindbergh boom and it changed everything overnight. People already were very excited about aircraft and obviously they were around. Um, but you know, if you look at the records and the numbers that kind of can reflect that, um, for example, and I wish I could remember exact numbers here, so I'm sorry that I don't, but like in 1927 in the United States, there was something like 40 registered aircraft manufacturers. And then if you check back in, in like 1929, 1930, there are like 170. And then the Great Depression came along and things were going so smoothly. So it drops back down significantly after that. But that just kind of shows the interest um, and obsession that we had in the United States and around the world. Uh, for aviation and there are also so many movies there i've seen hats and weird costumes and children's novels and just don't even get me started on all the charles Lindbergh knickknacks you could buy <laughs> you know so this is a world that was obsessed with aviation and it was a world that was changing so fast the first united states airmail was launched in 1918 and we have a big exhibit here about that which we're constantly expanding actually um and the technology needed to make that successful so that starting in 1918, we had no infrastructure in the United States for that. And then by the late 20s, we were doing night flights, transcontinental flights, and nobody, well, hopefully nobody, very few pilots were having accidents and fatalities. Whereas within the first two years of the airmail service, half the pilots had been killed. Yeah, that was always an incredible stat of how many airmail pilots we lost. Insane. Yeah. Um, And not to get too nerdy here, but like, that's a story that I love. Like on the surface, it sounds horrible and it is horrible. And then when you look, why did that happen? No, it wasn't just technology, although there was a ton of technology change and it wasn't just aircraft technology. It was also infrastructure. It was how we communicated. It was calling ahead for the weather. And then it was our weather, um, sorry, our light beacons system. And it was installing more emergency landing fields. And it was also a huge strike that happened where the pilot said, we can't do this anymore. You have to install some more safety features and let us make decisions about whether it's safe to fly or not. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like a cultural thing. And I think aviation at that time and culture are just so deeply intertwined. Well, and I think it's a very fascinating, like you said, time frame to to focus on. And, mm-hmm. you know, I love the Warbirds as much as anybody else. Oh, yeah. um, and, but, there, you know, there's a lot of museums that do the Warbirds. I think it's really cool that you guys focus on another part of aviation. Uh, and, and I love it. I think that's super cool. Uh, love the fly-in. I could easily talk about your museum all day, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But um, – what first really excited you about aviation? Let's talk about you for a minute because you have a journey in aviation as well that uh, I want to make sure we talk about. Um, okay. What first got you started about uh, about flying? Was it the museum or how did that come about? Well, it was all location, I have to say, Chris. So like I mentioned earlier, I kind of grew up in the arts. Uh, I come from a big family and everyone's musicians. And my parents bought a farm near to Broadhead when I was about 10. And so we lived out here, you know, I was just doing my thing, but you can't help but notice airplanes going over. And we knew some folks who were pilots out of Madison and they said, oh my gosh, you moved to Broadhead? Well, that's a really cool place. There's an airport. And we were like, really, you know about Broadhead? It's like a joke, you know, but (laughs) the airport is an amazing place. Um, Since then, I've met people from Africa and Europe and 
Asia and South America and Australia and New Zealand here on this tiny airport, but the people in town don't even know we're here. That's another story. <laughs> anyway, so here I was, you know, growing up, I was a teenager here and I would come out to the airport at the fly-ins because it was magical and I love history. Um, at the time I was studying performance art and all of it um, and all the music I was studying was from the 1920s and 1930s. So like it was perfect. I could come out here and see a world kind of coming alive that was from that era that I loved. And I was studying film history and then I started studying media preservation. So I was doing a workshop at the Library of Congress and just learning about keeping history preserved. And around that time, and I guess that would be 2017, I my younger brother had been kind of involved with the EAA scouts program out here. And he said, Hey, there's a museum and they just got some old magazines. And if you love media presence preservation, uh, you should go out and volunteer. So I was like, yes. And I went out and I remember there was a rickety old building and it had been somebody's house, but also a hangar. So it was kind of one of those weird buildings <laughs> that's neither house <laughs> nor hangar. And, um, I went up the creaky stairs and it was, it had been someone's house. So there's like counters and carpet and like a bathtub. And um, that was the office. And the museum had recently purchased the land and with the intention of knocking that building down eventually and building the building that we have now. And there is a plastic tote bin, uh, the first of many plastic tote bins that had magazines. They were full color, absolutely beautiful, really well-preserved magazines from the 20s and 30s with and you know that era the artwork is amazing so these look like like they'd be posters today it's just full color dramatic airplane scenes and I was transfixed but pretty quickly and I mean within a couple of weeks it became clear there's more than just cataloging library items here there are more than library items there are additional items and so the summer wore on and the fall wore on and I was volunteering um and the only employee of the museum at the time was Patrick Whedon, who is the executive director and still is. Um, and he has a huge family history here on the Broadhead Airport. So you should probably interview him at some point. But eventually he was like, look, you're doing so much here that isn't cataloging books. We can't call you a librarian and we should probably hire you. <laughs> so I became the second paid employee. And I started out just doing archival work and library work, trying to preserve, you know, get these things out of plastic tokens, even though they needed to be stored for eventually... Uh, several moves actually um, and then as the years went by I have a, also a history of writing I do a lot of writing and editing so I started doing fundraising and then our newsletters and, and everything just took on a life of its own there was so much to do it was so exciting things were changing we started building our new building in 2019 um, and by that time I was pretty pretty firmly at the heart of the organization um, we've had a pretty small staff obviously it's grown a little since then so I wasn't involved in aviation at all, but of course you cannot not be interested if you're here every day. And I assumed every small airport was like this. Every small airport has no paved runway. Every small airport has a 1930s uh, airmail light beacon just sitting there that turns on <laughs> at night, right? And every small airport probably has some biplanes. That's normal. It's not normal. I did not know that. And I still don't fully comprehend it because that was my normal. So growing up, that was my normal. And then I'm here. There's rare one-of-a-kind airplanes flying. I would come to the fly-ins and someone would be like, do you want to ride? And later I'd find out that was the only airplane like it in the world. Um, <laughs> and I love history. So what more could I possibly want? Um, and you can't be here for very long and not start flying. So I started racking up random hours riding, but also, you know, everyone would say, do you want to fly a little? Um, so flying myself a little over the years. And it becomes kind of like a duty, you know, <laughs> like you are in aviation. You got to do your part too. 
So in the last few years, I've just been so lucky to be able to fly in a lot of incredible aircraft and meet a lot of incredible pilots with experience that I didn't think anyone had, you know, pilots with experience flying World War One airplanes, pilots with experience flying pre-World War One airplanes, and, you know, people who have 300 types or 70, some outrageous types and numbers. Um, so that's inspiring. And I woke up about two years ago and realized that I have a lot of hours and I should probably go ahead and get my license at some point. So that's kind of an ongoing journey along with the museum. That's my aviation story. Does that answer your question, Chris? I feel like I left some gaps. No, well, it does. Let's talk about one gap you left. And it's that, you know, I've, I, I love just about any type of airplane out there, but you're not doing your lessons in like a Cessna 172. Can we talk about the, the type of airplane you're, <laughs> uh, you're learning to fly in? Yes. No, we don't allow Cessnas here. We only very progressively <laughs> let and knows we'll land here. Um, just kidding. We love everybody, but you know. Um, so I cannot say enough how I, much I love history. And I am walking around every day amongst our larger collection of 1930s airplanes and meeting these pilots who own them and know how to operate them. And I had a couple lessons in a Luscom. I can't remember what year. Um, so that seemed pretty modern to me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and eventually when I finally sort of committed, okay, I really, I think I do want to go ahead and do this. Here I am, you know, what a great opportunity. I realized that it would be way more meaningful to me if I could learn in a vintage aircraft and learn in as close a manner as possible to somebody who'd be learning when that aircraft was new. Um, this was my choice, but it also became the only practical choice because through my work, I had made so I've made some really wonderful friends. Um, and one of them is kind of a retired CFI and he has a handful of airplanes. And I told him I wanted to start out by doing light sport. And he said, he'd be happy to teach me, but he only had one aircraft that would qualify for light sport. And I said, what? And he said, you would have to use the Curtis Wright Jr. And now for people who don't know what the Curtis Wright Jr. is, picture a canoe um, <laughs> and it's red. And um, then you put a wing, just an upper, a wing, it's a parasol wing, about halfway along the canoe and an engine and it's a pusher. So it's back there. And then you put your pilot way up front in the very front of the canoe. And you spread out the tail really far out back to counter that, that weight. And that's the Curtis Jr. So <laughs> it, it is the, there will never be another airplane except maybe like the breezy that has a better view. There's absolutely nothing around you as the pilot. You're way out front. That has its own <laughs> difficulties as you can imagine while learning to fly. So I said, yeah, of course, that sounds great. Who wouldn't want to do that? Um, it's from 1931, the Curtis Jr., pusher adorable little airplane and then my friend instructor said i it doesn't have an intercom and i was like okay and he was like but i do have a gosport tube so we can use that and if you haven't heard the term before the gosport tube is kind of the technology for communicating between passenger and pilot in the teens and 20s and it's basically just a leather helmet that has tubes going to its ears and then those tubes come out and converge into like basically an uh, a funnel, an ear trumpet that the, <laughs> the, the instructor talks into. So this is one-way communication, as you, as you may have guessed. Um, and it doesn't work really well. You do have to kind of shout. So that was my experience. I started out in 2021 
um, and did a lot of training. Well, I guess a lot is like 15 hours, but you know, it's a lot in that little airplane. And then I kind of had to take a break. And then I did another 20 or so hours this year in that. And I finally was able to solo in that airplane. And it, oh, of course, it has no radio. I guess that kind of goes without saying. Tailwheel, all the stuff. And I have loved hearing people talk about the junior. I didn't really know when I started flying it that there are, I think, and I hope somebody will call in and say that we're wrong and there are more, but I think there are only nine that are airworthy right now. Wow. Although Curtis Wright did build, I want to say like 230 or something. So they were pretty popular airplane. They were popular for instructing, although it's a terrible airplane to instruct in terrible (laughs) Um, and i have heard stories people have approached me and said my dad learned to fly in a curtis jr in 1935 you know my 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 parent or my uncle and no one does it anymore but a lot of people did it then and so i think i'm the only person to train up through solo and solo cross country in a curtis jr since probably like 1940 and I hope someone comes and tells me I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that is true. Wow, that's incredible. What an absolutely incredible adventure that has to be. It, adventure is the right word. It has <laughs> been a wonderful adventure. And I feel so lucky. You know, like I could not have dreamed even like five years ago, even when I started here, that I could say I did that. You know, now when I say I'm a pie, you know, like I have my leather helmet and my leather jacket and I went out to a restaurant recently and I had been flying all day and my hair was a mess. So I just went in dressed that way kind of cringing you know self-conscious <laughs> and some person came over he's like nice costume and i was like it's real thank you and <laughs> he was like are you you're a pilot and i was like you know what i get to say that now i get to say i'm a pilot because i flew this stupid little canoe airplane <laughs> for 78 miles you know and it was november and i was cold 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 <laughs> and then he said who do you fly for <laughs> <laughs> myself thank you yeah <laughs> so, yeah that is the story chris that is amazing congratulations on your solo that's that's such a huge day it is what was going through your mind when you were up there by yourself in that uh flying canoe <laughs> you know i that had to feel pretty good it did it felt like a long time in coming i was a little freaked out i discovered that i talked to the airplane <laughs> nobody laughed please so <laughs> I didn't really, you know, I didn't feel very alone. And like, even just writing about it later to my mom, I was like, and then we landed and I was like, but I was alone, but it definitely airplanes have character. That airplane has a ton of character. And so it never really feels like I'm alone, if that makes sense. And then I got up to altitude and, you know, you notice all these things your first solo. Like I was like, oh my gosh, now that we've taken 160 pounds of instructor out of here, like I can't keep the airplane down, (laughs) you know, woo, we're up and um, I can't even keep it at altitude. It just wants to keep going up, which is outrageous because the Curtis only thing that that has more drag and drops faster than the Curtis Jr. is probably a rock. <laughs> so that was fun. And then I was laughing. And then I landed and I was laughing because it was it was so delightful. What else can you do? Oh, that's that is so fantastic. That is so cool. I uh during the show uh, or the fly in down there, I actually got the chance to fly in a breezy. Uh, which is, yeah, I got that. That was amazing. Uh, what a free feeling, uh, that is. Um, uh, so I can, I, so I, I, not exact same view, but, uh, but, uh, I can compare notes that my gosh, that is a very free feeling for those who don't know a breezy, a breezy is just kind of, a really just kind of a, a structure with two seats on it and a pusher prop and a high wing and, and off you go. I mean, there's really no surrounding fuselage, if you will. Um, 
And I'll tell you, the the strangest thing was, you know, you felt really stable. I didn't really feel at all that it was weird until uh, uh, an airplane was off on our right. It was like a cabin waco or something. And I could see they were like waving at us. And then someone like <laughs> pulled out a camera and was taking a picture. And you realize that like, oh, I'm just sitting in a seat. <laughs> you know, like that's In the sky. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, it yes! was a good time. Your feet just dangle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's insane. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. Um, well, I mean, you know, you have covered, uh, I think you've really gone a, a great route. I mean, you, you've started into to preservation, which is hugely important. I think you found a place that you truly belong. And, and to be honest, they need you. Aviation museums uh, and museum you know, institutions around the world, um, they need folks who are excited about preserving history. That's we're the folks that are going to make sure this stuff's around in a hundred years, you know, and, uh, um, and we, you know, when we come on the, the shoulders of giants to people that came before us doing it. Yeah. Let me ask you, this is a tough one. Okay. Do you have a favorite plane in the museum collection? Mm, that is a tough one. Gotta think about that. Can I give you like kind of a little bio of a couple? Yeah, absolutely. That absolutely. run through my mind when you say that? Yeah. Yeah. And of course I have, I'm very fond of the junior, but it's not actually in the museum collection. Uh, within our collection, I am extremely fond of, <sighs> I think, three main airplanes uh, for various different reasons. And it's usually about the story that's happened to them. So to, to clarify, we have the museum itself. Our, we are a nonprofit and we do own our building, our property, additional hangars, multiple airplanes and cars. However, also on display, we do display aircraft that are not owned by us, but for whatever reason are on kind of permanent or temporary loan and display. Um, usually it's privately owned and they need, it works out well. They get heated full year round free hangar space and we get to display a one of a kind airplane. So I'm not going to just name airplanes that we own. That was my disclaimer. <laughs> um, Right now, what's on display out of the 13 that's on display, I absolutely love that we have a real Charles Lindbergh airplane in the museum right now. Um, so it's a bird, a Brunner Winkle bird biplane. And after Charles Lindbergh married Anne, he wanted to teach her to fly. I believe that was 29. And he picked what he thought would be the safest and the easiest to fly, easiest to learn in an aircraft. And it was a bird. Um, they owned it for a couple years and got her license in it. Um, it came with all, of course, you know, if you're Charles Lindbergh in 1929, you could have whatever you want. And he got all the bells and whistles from the factory. So it's a really tricked out in terms of 1929 technology uh, uh, instrument panel. You get in there and it's, you know, like four <laughs> extra things. But still, and they say, and I don't know on the measurements, um, and I have to check, but they say that the back pilot's cockpit is a little higher than it was supposed to be in the plans because she was short so she could see better and that the front cockpit where the passenger would sit and so therefore where charles would sit is a little lower because he was six two um i haven't confirmed that so i love that airplane it's a gorgeous baby blue cream wings it has a kinner k5 engine on it and that is the very same engine that it had when they bought it when it rolled out of the factory so that's like oh, wow and it still flies wow so that whole thing is like you know you are touching the stuff that they touched obviously it's had some repairs over the years but it's as original as it gets and more original in many ways than many of the other aircraft in the collection um and yeah like i said it's still airworthy i was so honored and excited to get a ride in it not this past, not summer 23, but summer 22. And, you know, 
that's insane. I'm sitting here in this cockpit thinking, oh my God, Charles Lindbergh was sitting in this seat. Yeah, what? that's wild. Wow. So insane. That one is privately owned, like I said, um, by a gentleman on the East Coast. And we've just been really lucky to be able to have it here on display. It was at Oshkosh a couple years ago. And so we've been happy to keep it safe and share it with people until um, it could go back to the coast or whatever he decides to do with it next. Um, next up in my in my favorites list would have to be. It might be our. It's so hard, Chris. I'm thinking of our fleet. <laughs> our littler biplane, you know, we had these huge biplanes designed in the 1920s. And by the 30s, we wanted aircraft to be more economical because of the Great Depression. And also, we had designed things a little better so we could tighten things up. So there are some smaller biplanes from the uh, early 30s. And the fleet is a little smaller. It's really easy to fly. It was donated to the museum itself um, two or three years ago. And that was really special. And it's a special story to me um, because there was a guy who had restored it in the 90s and he flew it all over a wonderful guy unfortunately i didn't get to meet him and he had passed away um in january of 2022 and his widow it was very important to her they did not have children and he loved children and she really wanted to make sure that wherever that aircraft went it still flew because that's what he wanted and that it would not just be locked up in someone's hangar for no one to enjoy they wanted it to be somewhere that people could enjoy it and appreciate it. And they had never been to the museum here. Um, they were from the Illinois, Wisconsin area and they found us. I'm not sure how, and they sight unseen pretty much wanted the, the airplane to come here. So I know that our reputation precedes us, but we're very, very honored to, to, you know, to be able to carry on that legacy. So that's our fleet. It's a gorgeous burgundy color. Um, it also has a Kinner engine, five cylinder radial, and, I'm very happy to say that we have fulfilled our promise as yet um, so far. And we did fly that over the summer here. We're very lucky that on the field and also on our board of directors and among our many, many wonderful volunteers, we have a lot of very skilled mechanics and pilots. You know, we could not do this and we certainly couldn't be a flying museum without that kind of knowledge. And that, again, that's a, a place where I I'm kind of spoiled. I assume that any A&P can work on any airplane, but it's not like that. <laughs> and a lot of AMPs won't work on, you know, a 1935 engine, um, nor would that be appropriate. So we are very lucky to be able to have basically every kind of person and profession and piece of infrastructure necessary to keep these things running in our community here and in the Midwest. It's almost uh, it's almost its own art form. Oh, Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean it. It's just completely different, uh, you know, than working on a seven thirty seven engine or something. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but no, it's just different. Yeah, to me, it's just different. This is this is kind of you know almost like a, a lost art, if you will. So it is. Um, and I want to say about that, you know, the art is going away. And there's so many people here. I've had the honor to interview like a World War II pilot who's 103, and a lot of people who learned from that generation what they're doing and now there's nobody who wants to carry it forward so a big part of what the museum is passionate about and working on all the time is finding ways of collecting that knowledge before it's gone stuff that you know people learn by word of mouth and it was never written in a manual you know there's no official weight and balance or aircraft specification sheets for these they're they don't you know so you got to talk to the people and when that when that generation is gone we won't even have that and so we can do oral histories we do that here um and just try to collect that because we're gonna regret it if we don't <laughs> yeah, absolutely absolutely well I, it has been 
just fantastic talking with you today. Uh, I could easily do several parts of a show with you. Um, and, and again, I, I just feel, you know, I, I, it's wonderful. We need more we need more young people who are interested in preserving history and telling that story and, and protecting history for the future. And uh, so just thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the Calch Aviation Museum for 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 trusting uh, you to take care of their collection and help uh, maintain it. And, um, and keep up the great work flying. We can't wait to follow your adventure there. Um, and everybody who's listening, please... Go online, check out the Couch Aviation Museum's Facebook page. There's a website. Uh, we would absolutely just uh, love to have uh, more followers and more support for that wonderful institution. Yes, please. Yeah, um, check out our, our website. We also have a YouTube channel, and um, we have quite a number of videos, and I host a lot of them, and they go in depth to all the stories about the aircraft that I don't have time to tell you today, but they're very fun, and I would love to have some some more viewers on those and then you know come visit us because we are on the way pretty much from anywhere if you're going to air venture we are a stop on the way so plan that in if you're if, if you can land on on grass then you can land here and we will be waiting to welcome you well that's fantastic i mean thank you so much for being here uh and thank you all for listening and supporting the green dot uh, without our listeners and supporters uh it would just be me and rob talking to ourselves in a room here so uh <laughs> truly thank you guys for the kind comments and the feedback uh it really matters and we share it along our team uh so again thank you and uh, we look forward to our next episode and joining you next time when we're cleared to land on the green dot yeah.